Yep, so we're reading in Acts chapter 19 at verse 23. So last week, uh, the reading finished with Paul in Ephesus, in the province of Asia, and the summary statement in verse 20, uh, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So we're moving on from that. So verse 23. About that time, there arose a disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. And you see how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and is practically... Uh, and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theatre. Paul wanted to be appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-consuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case... Uh, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. May God bless his word to us. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Chris, if you, you don't know me, and uh, I've been asked to help out with the sermon today. Um, what, is it, what is it, Mel, that you did? Auto GP chat thingy? <laughs> That's, it's not this. Thank God I haven't used that. Trust me, I haven't used that. No rhymes. 
Um, uh, just for the year six, seven and eight kids, you're with us this morning, which is great. We love having you here with us. Um, I was thankful to God for the song that we had when we came back in from Morning Tea. Um, it contains, one of the verses contains in it the kind of like the preacher's prayer, what every preacher wants to pray, which was, Lord, let my lips be, uh, let my, uh, let my lips, take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee, which is uh, exactly what you want as a preacher. No, not my words, but hopefully God's words from the Bible. Um, and the whole song really um, uh, is a challenging prayer uh, for all of us. Um, but we're thankful for God's grace and mercy and we know that he is helping us uh, to, to more and more uh, let Jesus be on the throne of our hearts. Uh, so let's pray again briefly and, uh, and thank him. Father, we're so thankful that we can be together this morning under your care. I thank you for speaking your word to us and thank you that you have set the Lord Jesus on the throne of the universe. And Father, please help him to be on the throne of our hearts. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, here, on, here at Sunday morning, we've been working through the Bible book of Acts. Uh, one of our core convictions here is that the Bible is the way that God, our Creator, God, our Heavenly Father, speaks to us, uh, which means that one of our main activities in our relationships with each other here at church is that we want to be helping each other uh, to trust and obey God uh, as we nourish and are nurtured uh, by his word. Well, here is the verse that we're up to. As we kind of work our way through the book of Acts, you'll see it on the screen there. Uh, chapter 9, verse 23 says this. About this time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Well, here's a few things to help us get our bearings as we start off. The place that we're in is the ancient city of Ephesus. The great disturbance is a city-wide uproar, an angry mob. The threat of violence is very much in the air. The threat is directed towards the Christians and their message. And in this verse, the first Christians are called the way. We're going to come back to that description of us. Are we living up to it? Are we being the way in our neighbourhoods and in our city? The book of Acts is all about the man, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, God's son, our Lord and saviour, ruling our world at God's right hand. The book of Acts is really good for us because it lifts our eyes to what we so easily forget. This world, its kingdoms, its powers and authorities is not all there is. There is a greater kingdom. There is a greater king. Though we cannot see him, we believe in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the ancient city of Ephesus was a very strategic place for the Lord Jesus to come to, to come to in his saving power, to come to in his mercy, to come to in his grace. The risen Jesus sends Paul there, his apostle. He is Christ's ambassador, Christ's messenger. Ephesus was an important political centre, capital of the Roman province of Asia, famous for its markets and trading and commerce. 
a very religious place, guardian city for the temple of the goddess Artemis, known in uh, Roman mythology as the goddess Diana. Like Sydney, people in the surrounding areas of Ephesus would go there and spend time there for shopping, for entertainment, for arts and culture, to visit the impressive temple of Diana. The temple was massive, four times the size of the Parthenon in Rome, full of beautiful artworks and sculpture. An image of the goddess was there. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In Ephesus, because of this temple, there was money to be made. There was a whole cottage industry of silversmiths and related trades selling little silver shrines and other religious bric-a-brac. And now this city is in uproar. We know it's a big deal because it fills the theatre in Ephesus. Here's the picture of the ruins that are still there. Its seating capacity is estimated to be between 20,000 to 25,000 people. Two of, Paul's, uh, two of the Apostle Paul's travelling mates are dragged in there by the crowd. And Paul, being the leader that he is, he wants to be out there with them. But he's restrained. He's held back. He's persuaded. Not a good idea, Paul. There is mass chaos. You see it there in verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. It's both scary and funny, isn't it? Mob violence is scary. And look at what's happening in, uh, in France at the moment. But what is kind of funny is most of them knowing, not knowing why they are there, yet still happy to join in all the shouting and uproar because one thing they do know, there is some kind of threat in their midst, some kind of threat to their way of life. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this great city has posed a threat, a danger to the culture, the way of life known and loved by the Ephesians. But why? Why is the gospel message so dangerous, so capable of upturning people's lives? Well, the silversmith, Demetrius, is in no doubt where the threat comes from. He points his finger at that fellow Paul. Look at verse 26. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Well, is worshipping idols still a thing? When I walk my little pug dog, Phoebe, around our street, I said, pugs do walk, they, they walk. <laughs> <laughs> she gets very breathless, but uh, uh, I see lots of stone Buddhas uh, in people's front yards. When I go to my local Thai restaurant, I might see a little shrine set up with photos of family ancestors that have died. In the hospital where I work, uh, in the chapel, uh, people bring in photos of Jesus or other people and they pray to them. What does it mean here, gods made by human hands? 
Do you worship and bow down to statues or religious photos? Surely in postmodern secular Australia, we have moved beyond all this concern about idols and idolatry. No. The Bible teaches us that idols and idolatry is everywhere, in every place and in every culture. And idols are not just out there, but in our hearts. Our terrible rejection of the true and living God results in us worshipping and serving created things rather than our creator, who deserves to be forever praised. Without God in our life, we fill the void with other things. Well, what is an idol? An idol is anything in your life so central that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. Idolatry is anything you look at and in your heart of hearts you say, if I have that, then my life has value, my life has meaning and if I would lose that, I wouldn't know how to live. An idol can be anything, can't it? Family, children, career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, social standing, romantic relationships, competence, skill, physical beauty, yours or others political or social causes. It can be your moral record, your religious activity and even your ministry success. All of those things can become idols in our lives. Often idols in our lives are not about pursuing bad things. They're often very good things, created things that we make ultimate things. At my workplace on a Friday, it's amazing how many people seem to have a spring in their step? Having a good weekend has become everything to so many of us. Toward the end of the working week, we begin to anticipate and long for it. And then on Monday morning, it's the topic of conversation. What did you get up to on the weekend? David Williams, who is a trainer of missionaries uh, with the Church Missionary Society, has written a lot about cultural worldviews and the different kinds of cultural worldviews that you come across, like the uh, honour and shame cultures of the world, or the power and fear cultures of the world, or the innocent guilt cultures of the world. But he's also talked of another one that's very relevant for us. He talks about uh, the one of the he, he thinks is one of the idols of our Western cultures, and that is the pursuit of pleasure and comfort and the avoidance of pain and suffering. Uh, he, he thinks, and I think he's right as I think about my own life, that we live in a culture where uh, we, we, would, we would do everything to pursue comfort and pleasure in our life and we would do everything we can to try to stop pain and suffering coming into our life. They've become ultimate things in people's lives. Um, and really, it's a wicked lie that denies the suffering of our God and the beauty of it and the importance of it and denies the way that God uses suffering for his good purposes in our lives. He even says that you can see this idol in the way that Christians often pray, what we pray for. How often do we pray that God will take away the pain and the suffering and that he'll give us you know, comfort and ease? So how do we identify the idols in our heart? 
Well, the Bible teaches us that the idols are those things that we really worship or love or serve above God. Uh, wasn't it great the way God kind of timed the sermon today with the kids' talk? The kids' talk, same topic. Uh, the first commandment, the, the, uh, you shall have no other gods beside me. Well, how do we identify those things that we put above God? Well, I want you to do just a little bit of soul reflection, a little bit of personal thinking as I put up on the screen the three things. Firstly, worship. What is it that energises you? What is it that you praise and you just love talking about? And I'm kind of thinking of when we make that bigger and greater than God, more important than God. Or what about your loves? What is it that you cannot let go of or you feel you couldn't live without? What are those things in your life that potentially could become idols, couldn't they? Or what about serve? What is it that really masters you? What is it that shapes who you choose to be in the world? That shapes your everyday decisions? For example, how you use your time or how you spend your money. My reflection for myself, my KO Sports app, do I need to get rid of it? Maybe. For me, people's praise, wanting people to think well of me, uh, has been a long-term kind of battle with that. Um, definitely a life of comfort and financial security. What's gone on in your heads as you've thought about those three things? What kind of things has God brought to mind? There's a great quote here from the late Tim Keller who passed away recently. He says, Every single culture, every single life is dominated by idols unless it is dominated by the glory and the grace of God. It's worth thinking for a moment about the idolatry in the city of Ephesus. The idolatry that felt so under attack when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ came to town. While outwardly the Ephesians worshipped the goddess Artemis, behind Artemis really is the god of money and wealth. There was a lot of money to be made from the tourists that flocked to see their amazing temple. And when the silversmith Demetrius gets up to address his fellow makers of, and sellers of silver shrines, he goes on about the need to seek and honour the great god Artemis, yet we all know what his real idol is. We know what he fears losing. We know what he can't bear to live without. The wealth, the status, the power and the privilege of being a maker of the silver shrines of the goddess in the great city of Ephesus. That's where his idol really is. The name Artemis is thought to mean she makes people safe and sound. Do the people of Ephesus look a people safe and sound to you? Do such people rise up at the least provocation and seek to drown out all counterclaims? Our idols cannot make us safe and sound. They cannot deliver to us what they promise because the idols of our heart are really nothing. They're nothing. The people of Ephesus are on edge, ready at any moment to defend their God. 
because it seems she can't defend herself. Our idols are weak and feeble. Look at Demetrius' words in verse 27. He says, There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. The goddess is in danger of losing her divine majesty? Why is that? Because some fellow Paul has turned up at the local lecture hall speaking out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How weak and feeble this goddess must be. But why is there such a violent reaction? On the one hand, idols are empty and worthless things. You've taken a created thing which doesn't have the power to give you what you want. It's something you've made yourself. On the other hand, though, the idols seem to wield such great power. Idols are violent. Here in Ephesus, for two hours, the mob are shouting, Great is Artemis of Ephesus! Great is Artemis of Ephesus! And the threat of violence is very real. Paul had to be held back, lest he be literally torn apart by the rioting crowd. Here is the truth, you see. Idols are nothing, but through them, the powers and the principalities and the forces of darkness and the evil spiritual powers of this world deceive us and lead us astray. That is the reason why, on the one hand, the idols are nothing, yet on the other hand, they are unbelievably powerful. If you oppose them, expect a fierce and violent reaction. There is no mention of Jesus in this passage. Yet Jesus is the answer to all of our idolatries. He is the way, the truth and the life. And all of us who turn away from our idols in order to serve and to follow the Lord Jesus, united to him, we too become the way. Unlike Artemis, Jesus doesn't demand that you offer him sacrifice or build him shrines. Jesus doesn't demand that you give him gifts. He himself is the gift giver, the one who freely loves you by giving his life for you on the cross, the one who blesses you with forgiveness and peace with God. Jesus enables God our creator to become God our father. He's not like the idol of our hearts. He's not feeble and weak. His divine majesty you can never take away from him. He's not made with human hands. He is the eternal son of God who truly can make you safe and sound. Jesus' people in this passage, as we've already seen, are described as the way. This is because belonging to Jesus Christ is not just a belief, it's not just a conviction, but a way of life. In fact, it is the way of life. It's not a way for this person or another way for this person, but the way. Nor is it something we live just by ourselves, individually, over here. The Lord Jesus came to Ephesus to save a people for himself, a visible alternative community, 
are people who in their lives together are fleeing the idols of their culture, of their city, of their hearts, for someone a million times better, the one who really is God and worthy of our worship, love and service. It costs Jesus his life to defeat the powers. And that's what he did. When he died on the cross, the Bible says he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. He had victory over them by the cross. And when the adulterous world and the devil and all the spiritual powers unleashed all their fury against the Son of God, he bowed his head into it and died. The storm engulfed him, as it were, and he sank. And yet in doing that, he defeated them by bearing our sin in his body on the cross. Jesus utterly defeated the idols. He utterly defeated the powers and the principalities behind them. So how then should we live? Well, let me just simply say this. If we are not a bunch of people fleeing the idols of our culture, our city and our hearts, how can we expect the way of Jesus Christ to shine brightly in a life-changing way for other people? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us here today who have not yet done so, help us to turn away from the idols of our hearts so we might, above all else, worship and love and serve you, Father, the true and living God and your Son, Jesus Christ. And for those of us, Father, who have already given our lives back to the Lord Jesus, please help us to keep ourselves from idols. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.